usually the commentators are really good theologians but terrible preachers. And as I read the big thick books that have all the great theology, it takes a lot of interpretation. But this Sunday, this week, the commentator nailed it. Theologian Dale Bruner says it better than I could say it. Summarizing today's lesson, he says, wine always gives out. We have the deep privilege of living in contact with the winery. Let us trust him presently by doing whatever he tells us to do. There could not be a better synopsis of this text helping us read it and take it in from a law and gospel perspective. The law, the truth of the law, is that wine always runs out. The truth of the gospel is that we have living contact with the winery, the one who gives the wine, who sheds his blood for us. And the application is that we listen to Mary, who reminds us, do whatever he tells you. So let's dig into that just a little bit this morning. 240 hours. 240 hours is the length of most of our Schuster family summer vacations. 10 days is about all we can manage to squeeze out at one time. Otherwise, as you well know, the longer your vacation, the harder life is on both ends of the vacation, right? Out of those 240 hours, well, we end up spending four days driving because flying with a family of six is very expensive. Um, there end up being a couple of days that are just, just kind of wasted during that time because vacationing with four children is not easy. And we just need a little bit of downtime. And then, of course, it's always well advised to spend a little bit of time sleeping. So the number of hours we spend actually effectively enjoying our 240-hour, 10-day vacation, I calculated, is about 96. And the reason I burden you with all of that geeky, useless math is to point out that many of life's wonderful and best joys run out. We spend half the year anticipating our summer vacation. Where are we going to go this year? Are we going to go back to our favorite spot in northern Michigan? Or are we going to do something we've never done before and try something different? And we look forward to it. We imagine how wonderful it's going to be. We think about it for months. We plan ahead. Well, we're the Schusner family. Sometimes we plan ahead. And then it's over before we know it. It seems like in the twinkling of an eye, we are pulling back into the driveway and unloading the car and jumping back into everyday life. Wine always gives out. And this truth stands on its own 
Every good party has a limited supply of food and beverage, and you know that eventually it's going to be used up. But this truth also reminds us, or stands as a metaphor for all temporary things in this life. We seek experiences in, especially in our culture, our consumer culture, we consume experiences. Vacations, date nights, sporting events, concerts, you name it. And we look forward to them for a long time, but before we know it, they're over. As in our gospel lesson, meals and celebrations. We look forward to them, we take joy in them, and well, we should. These are good gifts of God. In fact, we pray regularly, give us this day our daily bread. But the meal is over, and we move on. Games and digital entertainment. It seems like today the options for games and for entertaining ourselves with a screen are nearly endless. But frankly, the more we consume, the less it satisfies and the more the joy runs out. Because of sin, the joys of this world will always and ultimately let us down. Not every party will run out of wine before it runs out of party. But in the end, this world's supply of wine, this world's supply of joy, of entertainment, you name it, it'll be found wanting. We were made for more than this. So in our text, Jesus' mother Mary confronts him with an assertive prayer request, if you will. She informs him, they have no wine. Now, when your mom comes to you and says something like that, even though it is not a question and there is only an implied action, you know she expects you to do something, right? Jesus, they have no wine. And it is part of Mary's worldview, part of her faith, that her son Jesus will do something about it. Is that not how we approach Jesus in prayer? Sometimes it's nothing more than, Lord, help. Here is the problem. I trust that you know how to fix it. Now, a little bit about this context, about the wedding here. Um, in first century Judaism, weddings Wedding parties were a big deal, and they often went multiple days. Two or three days was not unusual, and wine was the beverage of choice. It was the thing that kind of glued the whole party together. One, um, one teacher suggested that a wedding party without wine was like a modern-day birthday party without the birthday cake. It's embarrassing if you don't have it, if you run out of it. Not only that, the groom was responsible for providing the wine. So we see here, and remember, I asked you to remember this context throughout the sermon of, of, of um, the church, God's people being the, the bride and God being, God in Christ Jesus in particular being the groom. And 
for a moment here in this story, by providing the wine, Jesus steps into the place of the groom. And Jesus, in that place, provides miraculously and abundantly for the bride and the entire family. So even though it's not Jesus' time, he hears his mother's request and he responds. Jesus knows that we are made for more than this and his miracle that not only provides for that party, but it points the way to, it points to how he will bring abundant salvation through his new wine, the blood of his own body. So we've reflected a little, a little bit on how wine always gives out and how when we put our trust in the temporary things of this world, even if they are wonderful, good, joyful gifts of God, they will not last, they will not satisfy. But we have the privilege of living in contact with the winery. I once had a professor that, prior to being a professor, was a pastor in, um, in a, uh, um, a town in Northern California full of wineries, just north of San Francisco. And he said that he and his wife used to get on their bikes and they could bicycle from one winery to the next. <laughs> Wouldn't that be an idyllic little place to live? Living in contact with the winery. And of course the point is we know the Savior. He is the creator. He's the source, the supplier of every need. We're reminded in Matthew chapter 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but instead lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Well, at first we might wonder, what is Jesus doing here? Because he seems to be elevating and lifting up a temporal blessing. And I would like to frame Jesus' miracle in a way that doesn't conflict with Matthew chapter 6. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. First of all, this story is about relationships. Jesus blesses the bride and the groom by providing what is customary for the celebration to continue because in this celebration, they are not only celebrating the relationship that is formed in a marriage, in a sacred marriage of, of husband and wife, bride and groom, but they are also strengthening relationships amongst friends and family as they celebrate what God has brought together Jesus is lifting up something far greater than just a party. He's lifting up the sanctity of marriage and the importance of relationships. Second, wine has significance as a symbol and as a metaphor for the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 25 reads, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples and veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. 
and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And in this prophecy in Isaiah, we, we hear about wine being part of God's abundant blessings as the Messiah comes and conquers death and prepares a way for his people to receive eternal life. So Jesus has come as the true vine, the one from whom the grapes come, the nourishment comes, the wine flows. And then, of course, in that metaphor, we are the branches. His blood is shed for us so that we might be saved. And in holy communion, you and I continue to receive his true blood for the forgiveness of sins. And if he is the, if he is the vine, from whom we receive his true blood for the forgiveness of sins, where do the branches go? They go out. They extend out, which then reminds us of our call to be evangelists, reminds us of our call to extend that forgiveness of, that flows from Christ out into the community. I feel like my head is bouncing around. Let's mute this for just a second. Look any better, but you can hear me now, I hope. There we go. Um, so that transitions us to the third point where Mary instructs the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. The one who sheds his blood for us, who pours out his blood for the forgiveness of sins, is one worth following. Do whatever he tells you. Now, I'd like to think of this in a couple of categories. I'd like to think about universal instructions of Christ, where all people of all ages are given some basic instructions by Jesus that we do well to follow. And then I'd like us to think about very specific instructions and how they might be applied in our lives today. Universal instructions, though, might include, come to me. Jesus says to you, come to me. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life, he says. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He calls us to him, and when we come to him, we no longer deal with wine that runs out, but we receive eternal supply. Come to me, he says. Another instruction from Jesus, love one another as I have loved you. That's John 15, 12. He commands us to follow in his example of life-giving sacrificial love. This is consistent with the law of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and what? Love your neighbor as yourself. We have been loved so that we might love others and in the love of Christ we are sent out. Which leads to the third universal instruction for all of God's people make disciples. In the process of going into all the world, Jesus says in Matthew 28, make disciples of all nations, all ethnicities, 
baptizing them, evangelizing them, bringing them into God's kingdom and introducing them to God's forever family through the waters of baptism and teaching them everything I have commanded you, immersing them in God's word that they might, might embark upon a lifelong journey of learning from the word of God. We are called, sent, and loved so that we might evangelize, we might share this abundant wine with others. Now let's think for a moment about specific applications. As evangelists, how do we follow Jesus' instructions and serve up this new wine in our community? Three questions that I'd like you to reflect upon. One, who is your family? As God sends us forth as evangelists, loved by God, sent by God, saved by the washing of regeneration, his blood shed for us that when we are washed in the waters of baptism, we are forgiven and we are saved. We are sent to family. Who is your family? Of course, we might think, who are my biological family and how might I love them and bless them and model Jesus Christ for them? And who are those close friends that God has placed around me that are maybe not biological family, but as close as family that I get to love and care for just as Jesus loved and cared for me? And then, of course, who is my family of faith? I love our language of forever family as we talk about all the saints and this church community in particular. Who is my family? These are the folks to whom God has granted me new wine that I might share, that it might flow out from me as an evangelist in Christ's stead. And then the second question, what is your Christian Vocation. Now, when we first hear the word vocation, we think about our job. I happen to be a pastor. What, what do you do? Or what did you do? But Christian vocation is more than that. It's more than our call to be teachers and nurses and students and police officers and whatever else we might be doing as a vocation. Christian vocation is the call to live out our baptism, to understand what gifts God has given us to serve his people in our walk as disciples of Jesus Christ, and to use those gifts. Often it dovetails with various roles that we have as parents, as children as brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts and as friends and it dovetails with our roles at church and it dovetails if we are indeed in the midst of a career with our vocation but our christian vocation is bigger than that what has god called us to do in this world and how and how can we be evangelists in the process of doing that and then related to all of this where is your mission Who's your family? What is your vocation, your Christian vocation? And where is your 
mission field. So one of the challenges of being in full-time ministry is that I don't have as many mission fields for evangelism. I spend most of my time around you. And I love that. That's wonderful. But most of you, hopefully all of you, already know Jesus. And I have the privilege of teaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ over and over again and helping you grow in your faith. But sometimes I have to be creative just to be around folks who may not know Jesus already. For me, over the years, sometimes that has meant parking myself at a coffee shop when I do my work. And it's more likely that I'll have a conversation about Jesus with someone who is not already fully engaged in his church there than when I'm sitting in my office here. That is just one small way that I can answer the question, where is your mission field? And this is not profound. This is very simple. Where are the places in this world where you might encounter folks that need to have a conversation about the love and mercy and grace and forgiveness of Jesus. Recognize those and let the Holy Spirit work in you when you are in those places. So the wine always runs out. It's really easy in this life, in a consumer culture like ours, to continually, habitually, regularly put our trust in the next thing, the next experience, the next feast, the next game, the next way to um, escape reality and just kind of veg for a while. And often those things are not inherently evil, but they will not satisfy. The wine always runs out. But we live in contact with the winery. We live in living relationship with Jesus Christ, who says, I am the vine, you are the branches, who reminds us that he pours out, he sheds his blood for us, for the forgiveness of sins. Because we live in constant contact with the source, in him we can put our trust. In him we receive forgiveness and life and salvation. And then we can respond to Blessed Mary's command. Do whatever he tells you. When he calls to you, he says, come to me. Come. When he says, love one another as I have loved you, receive his love and then give it to others. When he says, go into all the world and make disciples, embrace that process. It's God's gift to the world. And be asking, who is my family? What is my Christian vocation? Where is my family? mission field. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we give you thanks. We thank you that as your children, we can enjoy the temporal things of this life, but we can enjoy them knowing that there is more than this. And we can carry into this world your love, your mercy, your forgiveness poured out for us that in our, in our families, in our Christian vocation, in our mission, we can offer you the new wine. It's in your name we pray. Amen.